and welcome to In Brackets. In this episode, Lisette Escariz Ferra talks with acclaimed Cuban writer Cristina Garcia about the diaspora, memory, and writing your obsession. Here's Lisette and Cristina. Hi, I'm Lisette Escariz Ferra here with Cristina Garcia for In Brackets. It is my great pleasure today to have a wonderful conversation with her. Cristina is the author of seven novels, including Dreaming in Cuban, The Agüero Sisters, King of Cuba, and Here in Berlin. She has edited two anthologies and published two young adult novels and a poetry collection. She has won numerous awards, including the Guggenheim Fellowship, a Whitting Award, and a National Endowment for the Arts. Cristina, thank you so much for joining us. Such a pleasure. Thanks for having me. Let's start at the beginning. Your first novel, Dreaming in Cuban, is a story about diaspora and the complications that come with that experience. What compelled you to write that story? Well, like pretty much every other Cuban family on the planet, um, my family was um, bitterly divided over the Cuban Revolution. And, uh, And so the template for the book was pretty much the divisions in my own family. Um, I think what was what I was trying to do somewhat differently is focus on the women uh, in this clan and look at the fallout from a big historical event like the Cuban Revolution and how it was affecting and changing and corroding and informing the relationships of these four women in one family, three generations. And so... Um, so I think I think uh, if you're Cuban in the mid 20th century, you have it's impossible to not remain. I think uh, deeply touched by what happened yeah. in 1959 and in the aftermath. Yeah. Wow. So um, in thinking about you know your journalism work, um, does it affect your writing at all? Or does um, it inform it? <laughs> probably um, less now, I think, than it did at the beginning, because I was a journalist for about 10 years. and uh, But I, I think there was a an, an economy, a succinctness, um, a sort of narrative drive that I learned in journalism. You didn't have too much space to tell enormous stories with... Uh, far-reaching implications and so uh I I think for me in a way I mean it's very distinctive but for me journalism and poetry in in a funny way have a lot in common and so I think when I moved from writing journalism to reading poetry something happened along the way that made me you know kind of unleashed the narrative larger narratives and um so, yeah, I, I think journalism was also helpful f- for research. You know, I feel I don't feel too intimidated by tackling big subjects or writing about uh, other cultures or histories far afield from my own. I think journalism helped me feel more confident about taking those on. Well, yeah. Well, you know, in thinking about these large stories, um, in 2009, you started writing young, uh, young adult fiction, and you published I Want to Be Your Shoebox and a, sh- a children's book, um, The Dog Who Loved the Moon, in 2011. What made you decide to start writing children's literature? 
Well, um, that that's a really a personal uh, response because I pretty much wrote the three books, the picture book, the middle grade book, and the young adult novel as my daughter was growing up. And so I wrote the three of them essentially for her. And now that she's off in the world, I haven't written anymore. So I guess maybe another round will happen if, if and when I ever have grandchildren. But, um, but it was a way of, I think, um, getting inside her experience. Um, uh, for the picture book, my daughter harassed me to get a dog forever, which we didn't get till much, much later. But instead, I wrote her a book about a girl who gets a dog. <laughs> you know, I was trying to get out of my <laughs> my uh, maternal obligations there. And, you know, in, in each way, I was sort of interrogating something that mattered to her desperately. Um, and uh, And so it was... It was a way of, of of trying to see the world through her eyes even more intimately than than as her mother. Mm. Yeah, seeing the world through her eyes. Um, I'm thinking of um, uh, King of Cuba and how you you did that as well. Tried to see the world through El Comandante's <laughs> eyes, and um, in that novel, there seems to be a persistent anxiety about. Um, memory, its construction, and its preservation. How do you understand memory in your works of fiction? Yeah, I, I think memory is certainly in the case of it going on thinking of Cuba is is definitely related to legacy. I think memory is a is a is another f uh, way of, of forging narrative, and so what we remember unconsciously what we choose to remember, what we forget unconsciously or choose to forget all shapes that narrative. And I'm kind of endlessly fascinated in our emotional investment in the narratives that we believe, that we subscribe to. Whatever their relations to facts, I mean, that's interesting in and of itself, but more interesting is what it says about what we need to believe to go on, what we need to believe about ourselves. Um, and and to what degree illusion and delusion um, uh, makes, is a part of that. Uh, it almost doesn't matter what the facts are to me, you know? It's how good a story is this? Um, and so I, I think memory is, is related to um, self-concept. Um, memory is related to idealism. Um, and memory, I think, is also related to the absolution or exaltation of pain, you know, on an as-need basis. Yeah. I think um, something that calls my attention to the ways that you construct memory in your novels, one of them that I'm really invested in is scent. Mm. And how often in your novels, scent will bring up a memory or through tact, or through, you know, vision. Could you speak a little bit more about, you know, th that craft of, of oh, yes. constructing textually? Yeah, I, I think um, for me, the sensory details are the most important. It's what brings a, a sentence to vivid life or not. And, and uh, I mean, I don't, I don't do this on a conscious basis now, but I think early on I used to, ask myself, well, what, what can I taste here? What can I 
what am I hearing here? Is there enough smell? I, I happen also to have a crazy sense of smell. I feel like I'm a, I was a bloodhound in another life. And so everything for me is very concentrated. I mean, I'm guessing probably at maybe 50 to 100 times because I walk around the streets and my husband doesn't smell anything, you know, like a friend is, you know, and I'm smelling something super acutely or I'll smell it in the car like half a mile before someone else will. It's insane. So I, I think for whatever reasons, I have a very strong sense of smell and maybe it's showing up in the books. But <laughs> but I do, for me, those sensory details are um, um, a, a kind of... Uh, who said that? I'm quoting someone. Like a lifeblood. It's like the lifeblood of, of the fiction. Um, and without it, it's abstraction. I mean, we could be, I mean, we could make arguments with abstraction. We can do math. We could do a lot of things with abstraction, even visual arts. But in the end, what's going to make something come alive on, on human terms are the sensory details. In your novels, there's a lot of attention. It's a topic that recurs, a motif that recurs of the Afro-Cuban religion of Santeria. Mm -hmm. Why is that? Um, why do you choose to bring it up every now and then? Well, mm -hmm. often in your novels. Yeah. Well, it, it's not something I grew up with specifically. Um, you know, my, my family, um, they were more, um, I would say, cultural Catholics, you know, not strict Catholics. Um, but it was something that uh, suggested itself first in Dreaming in Cuban through the character of Felicia, and uh, and then it and then I had to really because I didn't grow up in Miami, it wasn't around. I, I grew up in New York City, and so it was something I actually had to research, like any other subject. And um, and and so the more I began to research and under stand it and the more I realized how much of a how much of Cuba's cultural groundwater uh, was steeped in and um, you know s steeped in Santeria and its rituals and its belief and this syncretism between the Yoruban religions and Catholicism is, is at the heart I think of, of Cuban culture um, it's music, it's dance, everything. So, uh, and I, I know, I also think with the whole criollo population, it's something that was resisted or um, um, despreciado. You know, it, it wasn't, it wasn't particularly appreciated until more recently. It was also undercover for a long time because it couldn't be openly practiced. Um, but now, I think um, in recent decades its value and its contribution to Cuban culture, I, I think is being, you know, it's overdue, but it's finally being heralded. So aside from your creative writing, um, in 2002, you edited Cubanismo, uh, which is a collection of Cuban writing coming from various disciplines. You introduced the anthology with a statement about what constitutes Cuban identity. Looking back, I forget what years. I said. <laughs> but anyway, um, okay, I hope well, I can remember. Yeah. <laughs> well, you know, do you think any of that guanismo, what what constitutes what constitutes it has changed? More specifically, you know, what does it mean to be a Cuban writer today? 
Oh, I think it's constantly evolving. Just like language is constantly evolving and like um, identity and allegiances are constantly evolving. Even in the course of a single day, you know, we can be speaking Spanish a little earlier Mm -hmm. and and I can hear how rusty mine is. And um, and (laughs) and now we're, you know, we're we're speaking in a kind of tonally very different and, um, you know, with different kinds of formalities and allegiances. And, and so I, I, I just think it's something that is a constant work in progress. Um, I think I resent the notion of, of that there's only one way to be Cuban um, or even that you live on the hyphen, as one critic said it, you do or you don't, or, you know, sometimes you're leaning more toward one side or the other, uh, or you find other allegiances that are just as compelling. Um, uh, so I, I think identity is a complex thing. It doesn't necessarily, you're not necessarily defined by it, by where you were born or who your parents were. Um, it's, it's part inheritance, part choice, um, and, a, and a mix of other kinds of expositions and impositions, you know? <laughs> yeah. And maybe. always in flux, I think, yeah. And what does it mean today? I don't know. I mean, I I think each person defines that for himself. And again, like I said, I don't, I mean, in the past, I've gotten feedback where they say, oh, you can't be really Cuban because you don't write in Spanish or this or that, you know, other things like that, which I don't really pay much attention to. So um, I think there's room for all of our stories and all their permutations. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah, I think um, in in that anthology you mentioned um, things about the the music mm. and the sound of Cubanismo. Um, so you know, is there is there perhaps something in that in the in the music um, that ties you know all of us together? Um, do you think? Yeah, I would probably. I mean, what do you think? I, I think you you put on some great music and. You're at a Cuban party, everyone dances, okay? <laughs> you can't, if you're sitting down, there's an identity issue, okay? <laughs> oh, wow. <laughs> no, no. Um, what do well, you think about that? I don't know. You know, I um, I think dancing for me is, is a huge part of me personally feeling Cuban for me it's like you say it's infectious like Mm -hmm. I if I hear casino or salsa that that's that's Cuban or Puerto Rican or um merengue de Dominicana Mm -hmm. I it's infectious like I my body does its own thing oh absolutely Um, so I know I always found it very funny to go like I lived in LA for many years to go to a concert, Celia Cruz or whomever, I saw her in her Haiti, you know, maybe not her Haiti, but, but, you know, and people were sitting in an audience watching it. I said, that's crazy. Blasphemy. It is. I, <laughs> I consider that blasphemy. Exactly. So a few of us, you know, might go to the back or in the aisles, you know, making everyone else uncomfortable, but it was like, por favor, this is not to be, you know, it's not, it's not sit down and watch like a classical music concert. This is very different. Yeah. Yeah. No. And especially if someone as legendary as Celia Cruz, if she's giving a concert, usted no se queda sentado. You, you get up I know and it's dance. crazy. I know it's an insulto, you know, <laughs> to stay seated. Yeah. Oh, Dios. Yeah. One of, you know, in, in thinking about, um, 
a some of the the, the topics that are that are coming to the foreground. Um, what would you say are some of the most pressing responsibilities or questions that immigrant writers or even perhaps children of the diaspora that um, are thinking of, you know, writing, what would you say those pressing questions and responsibilities are? Um, that's an interesting question. Uh, well, I, I think, I think responsibility is, for me, is really not specifically uh, to... I think the responsibility of a writer is to his or her own obsessions, whatever they may be. And, um, you know, you could be Cuban or Cuban American or whatever, but you're, you know, fascinated by the history of South Africa or Pakistan or whatever. I, I think, um, I think we have a right to write whatever we want, but the responsibility comes in, in doing the work and the research and getting all the details, um, you know, just right so that your readers can suspend disbelief and surrender over. I mean, there's nothing worse than seeing something um, that you're already a little, you know, you're arching your eyebrow like, hmm, Christine Garcia is writing about Berlin, <laughs> but this German is wrong. You know, you can't, that can't happen or you, you lose all credibility. So it's ironic in a way that paradoxical that you're writing fiction, but you got to get everything right factually so that the fiction can soar so that the, the the truth can emanate from it so I think therein lies the responsibility in terms of the questions um I just think of, let obsession be your guide to your questions I mean I wouldn't I wouldn't say oh you're all Cubans or you're all Dominicanos and you have to <laughs> contend with these questions if you want or others you know I think I think um there are enough strictures <laughs> um, moving through the world and in our society without, I mean, writers can find their own questions, their own obsessions, their own way of refracting their realities, their times, other times. I, I, I trust the obsession of the writer, of a good writer. Hmm. Speaking about obsession, I, I don't know if I answered your question. I did, yeah. Yeah, more or less. Yeah. yeah okay. Both. Let me know if you want me to <laughs> circle back on anything. Okay. Sure. I think um, you know, right? Your points about the obsessions. Um, I, I really find that useful. Um, what would you say? You know, you, perhaps in dreaming in Cuba, uh, dreaming in Cuban or in King of Cuba. What are those obsessions um, that you wanted to satisfy? Um. Well, I think it goes back maybe a little bit uh, to what we were discussing earlier about uh, memory, legacy, inheritance, uh, inheritances. Uh, how do we forge story out of all of this? Um, why are we invested in the stories that we do get attached to and um and how do we prioritize you might you might even say hierarchize if that's a word you know <laughs> prioritize just um you know 
how you tell story. Like, how would you begin describing yourself, for example? What would be the top things? And then, and then, and then, how do you go archaeologically deeper, deeper, deeper into the bedrock and even beneath uh, who we are, uh, what this story is about? I mean, it's almost infinite, really. So, um, I don't know. With every choice, you're negating a million other choices. So, I, I don't know. Uh, not negate. I mean, maybe negating isn't what I want to say, but but I, I just think that there's a sort of a, every moment, every choice has a sort of eternity behind it, and uh, and I and I think we have to write what most desperately interests us and hope that it will resonate with others, but there's no guarantee. You know? mm. yeah. on, that, on that spirit of, you know, suggestions, um, you know, what would you, what advice uh, would you give to either aspiring immigrant writers or, um, you know, children of the diaspora? Uh, so, yeah. Um, well, I, I think um, I think to read widely from many different cultures um, <laughs> in many different genres. I think everyone should read more poetry, <laughs> and um, and I think um, I think we learn from our forebears and you know those who are writing with within our cultural context. But there's just as much, if not more, to learn from reading far afield of our own experiences. Um, not necessarily unless you want to write far afield from your experiences, but certainly reading far afield from your experiences. Uh, um, and so I might, the best advice I might give someone is to get a fantastic anthology of world poetry and start from there and mm. see, and see, see what you find, see what resonates, see what kinds of uh, cross cultural connections, see what you know what what kind of roots get entangled with yours uh, there's a, there's a word i love called rhizomes which is basically the roots you know beneath the surface so um i think if you go deep enough it becomes very rhizomal all these roots begin to connect uh, all the tendrils begin to touch in fundamental ways that is hard to tell from the surface you, know. you, you keep coming back to poetry and you have um, your poetry collection. What would you say, you know, uh, in the differences of those two um, forms, uh, what led you to write poetry um, after, you know, a long line of novels? Well, I'm, I'm not a poet, so I, I don't recommend that book particularly. <laughs> but um, <laughs> I'm just being honest. But... Um, but po poets are my heroes, and um, and there was a story I wanted to tell that I didn't feel I wanted to tackle in um you know as a novel. And the poetry book is essentially about the the story about my brother, a story of my brother, and he's had a very difficult life, and uh, and it's and it's a poetry book that where the brother is in conversation with his sister, aka you know an alter ego of me. And um, and in the spirit of my novels, but without taking it as a novel, it's an interrogation of the past. And it's an interrogation of motivations. It's an interrogation of family. It's an interrogation of 
intrafamilial allegiances or lack thereof. And and so it's it's a kind of extended poetic conversation uh, about we're related, but how do we belong hmm. or not? Yeah, I think, um, you know, so you've offered the suggestion to find a poem, uh, well, not a poem, a book of poetry, of world poetry. Um, what are some of those poets that, as you say, have been your heroes, that have absolutely inspired you? Oh, that would take up a few days. So, but <laughs> <laughs> but um, uh, I'm trying to remember. There's a, there's a very good, there's a few really good anthologies to start with. One of them is called uh, Against Forgetting, by uh, edited by Carolyn Forche. And it's, it's a broad array of voices from around the world. A lot of it is poetry of witness, testimonial poetry, but above all, it's gorgeous poetry. Otherwise, it wouldn't have made it. She has a wonderful sensibility. Um, there's another book called... Um, I think it's just called the Contemporary Book of World Poetry, edited by J.D. McClatchy. Again, wide array of voices from not just the Americas, but um, you know, European, Asian, uh, Indian, African voices. I mean, uh, no one is left out, and it's even organized geographically. And, and so, um, you know, at any given moment, I, I'm reading. Um, like right now, I'm reading a very contemporary poet, which I don't always do, but um, Ada Limon, whose last two books are just gorgeous. Um, so I'm happily reading her, but side by side with her, I'm rereading Ruben Darío. And, uh, and and I'm also reading uh, Jean Genet Theater, but as poetry, I'm reading it line by line as poetry um, because it des- kind of deserves that quality of attention. So at any given moment, it's a mix of things. So... I can't predict. Never the same. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Lastly, um, one of my curiosities is the presence of the sea, mm-hmm. so monumental um, throughout your work. Um, I'm, I'm thinking about, you know, uh, you bring Santeria often to the foreground. Um, and for me, as a Cuban, the sea has a very... It has a very spiritual meaning, but at the same time, it has a very concrete, often contradictory meaning. Um, and I'm wondering what the sea means for you. You know, being being we were both born and raised in Havana, and and there's something about ese mar. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. Well, I think I think you put it very beautifully. I think it, it has the spiritual charge of 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 Yamaya. You know, of uh, <laughs> of uh, just all of that beauty and power in one, and yet it's also um, so. But it's also uh, what divi- divides us. Um, uh, you know, from one side of the Straits of Florida to the other, it's kind of stand in for other kinds of divides, political divides, other divides. So, um, it can, it can, it can save us and kill us both, you know? Wow. (laughs) Yes. I mean, uh, the sea often, you know, for me uh, as a Cuban can mean both freedom 
especially thinking to this history of open borders mm-hmm. um, when it has been possible to leave and when we want to return if we want to return um, you know it, it it means both freedom and imminent death mm. um, so just just seeing it in, in dreaming in Cuban and how Pilar um, uh, is separated from her mom uh, and um, the main character wants to go back to see her grandmother and that sea that's there it's it's a very powerful presence mm-hmm. but thank you <laughs> thank you um, so very insightful and, and and this has been such a pleasurable interview and you know I, I think it's a good note to wrap up on um, Cristina, gracias. Thank you so much oh, for being here. Oh, thank you so much. <laughs> it w- really was um, a lot of fun, and I appreciated your questions and your interest. So, thanks. <laughs> Thank you for tuning in to In Brackets, the literary podcast of Hot Metal Bridge. A very special thanks to Lizette, Christina, and our assistant producer, Tyler McCloskey. I'm Avery Keeley. Thanks for joining us. We'll see you soon.